This is the truth of the matter is episode number 39. I am your host, Daniel, and I'm here with Jonathan. Before we get into today's message, we would like to begin by first giving a round of applause to all of our new and consistent listeners. We appreciate your loyalty and dedication by just listening to us anytime you have the chance. And we will also like you to do us a small favor. If you enjoyed today's podcast, do us a favor and share it with a friend, family member, co-worker, possibly an acquaintance, somebody on the street, anybody that tickles your fancy. Because we believe spreading word of mouth is the best way to grow. And last but not least... If it's not too much, leave a comment or rating on the social platform that you are listening to. We really appreciate your contribution to us here at The Truth of the Matter Is. And one person who really appreciates you is my brother, Jonathan. Jonathan, how's it going? I'm doing well. That's pretty good way to invite me in. Appreciate that. You know... Yesterday I was actually working And you ever had that feeling Or that moment That potentially you Eye somebody that you knew From like high school College And you might have not liked them Or you didn't speak to them But you know Kind of reminds you that it's a small world Ever happened to you? Mm. Not any particular person i didn't like but i have run into people in the past for sure you know i guess i'm not trying to focus on the idea that maybe me and that person didn't get along but i just thought it was really interesting that i'm out doing what i normally do working or you know tending to things that matter to me and you sort of run into somebody and whether you speak or you don't speak you kind of hint or you reminisce just a few of the things that, you know, happened or mattered at the moment when you ran into them, mm. you know? So I thought it was interesting. I saw someone that was someone I knew yesterday. And for a moment, I reminisced a little bit, went down a little road I would call history. And then I brought it back because at the time I was on the phone with my cousin. So I just thought it was interesting. Happens sometimes. So, anything interesting that happened to you this week that you want to share for the people to hear? Um, just you know, making progress, going in the right direction, heading into March. I now have a nice permanent position at my current job that I've been working for the last three months. Okay, wait a second. A we little... we gotta we gotta give you a round of applause for that. We gotta give you a round of applause for that because that's a that's a great accomplishment. Okay, continue, continue. Things have just been looking up. You know, January was a pretty rough start. February, we kind of got the engine rolling, got things going in the right direction. And now March is heading in or we're heading into March and I'm ready to take off. So. Okay. 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 That's just about the size of it. Nice. All right. So, you know, what's also nice. Um, It's the final day of Black History Month. Yeah. Yeah. 
For those who don't know, today's Monday. We actually decided to record Monday. We both had some things we had to do. So today is Monday, February 28th. And would you look at that? We can transition right into acknowledging and appreciating one more individual this month. I know last week we kind of cheated. We mentioned six women at once who had impact, but we both felt like it was necessary and we thought it would be really cool to acknowledge all six of them. So, as my brother so eloquently put, right, this is indeed the last week of February and the last day for today of February that we will be celebrating a black individual who rightly deserves their flowers because, you know, they've impacted our history from a positive standpoint. Therefore, and the truth of the matter is, we understand that some black people can't always be mentioned or you never hear about their accomplishments, which is why we have taken the initiative to recognize some of them. Therefore, now we're going to use this opportunity to kind of bring something up that we think a lot of you are very familiar about. And we thought we could use this as an opportunity to educate you on it. So, Daniel, can I get my drum roll, please? This week, we are going to be acknowledging Joshanna Henderson. Joshanna Henderson. Now, when we call someone an Uncle Tom, we're usually not saying it as a compliment, right? I would believe so. Usually, the term refers to a traitor. A more modern term would be a snitch. Now, what if I were to tell you that Joshanna Henderson's life story was overshadowed by the 1865 classic Uncle Tom's Cabin, where Uncle Tom acts as a moral, overly forgiving slave with an unyielding loyalty and compassion for his master. And Uncle Tom was partially constructed using stories taken from Henderson's autobiography, right? The life of Joshanna Henderson who was a former slave inhabited of Canada and was narrated by himself that was published in the year of 1849. Well, guess what? It's true. Similar to Uncle Tom, Henderson was faithful to his master. In fact, the callus for Uncle Tom's cabin completely mirrors Henderson's real life. Henderson served his owner for 20 years and was sold to settle a debt. His former master trusted him so much that he allowed Henderson to deliver himself, his wife, his children, and about a dozen others to their new master into Kentucky. According to Henderson's autobiography, as he traveled from Maryland, he passed through the free state of of Ohio and neglected the opportunity to liberate his carnival. Real Uncle Tom's behavior. When Henderson reached this much cruel newer master, Riley, he read it quickly, right? Acted on his own principle. Henderson made arrangements to buy his family's freedom. But of course, his master didn't honor the agreement. Henderson honestly and compassion made him too valuable to part ways. Let me repeat that. Henderson's honesty and compassion made him too valuable to part ways. And Uncle Tom's cabin, the main character, struggled with a similar situation and ultimately dies before ever gaining his freedom. In fact, Uncle Tom was beaten to death by his overseers and forgivers. Then before taking his final breath, this is where Uncle Tom and Joshanna Henderson's story drastically 
changes and it's different. Henderson wasn't with the nonsense and foolery. In 1830, following so many broken promises, he took matters into his own hands and dipped out. His escape was almost sounds like a drastic movie trailer. After stowing away in Ohio with his wife and kids on foot, he encountered Native Americans who helped him get to New York. From that point, some boatmen assisted him and his family in reaching Ontario, Canada. Even more redeeming, he made it part of his life's mission to free other enslaved black folks. In addition to inspiring the novel that be that been credited with ushering in the Civil War and consequently the liberation of slaves in the U.S. His praiseworthy list of accomplishments includes rescuing 118 slave people, winning a medal at First World's Fair, and helping to build dawn of the final stops of the Underground Railroad. So, I share this story because I want people to be educated on what the term Uncle Tom came from and I want people to use it correctly I realized Uncle Tom really wasn't a snitch instead he was a man of principle the rioter the writer Harriet Beecher Stowe who created the character Uncle Tom immediately says the book presents Christian America the ugly controversial truths about slavery the character's blind benevolence in the face of Cruelty makes most black people gag and are really upset. At the same time, we have to realize that the book is credited for sparking the American Civil War that eventually ended slavery. So, the character Uncle Tom wasn't pulled from Harriet's imagination. Instead, Uncle Tom was partially constructed from Joshanna Henderson. So, Daniel, have any thoughts about this story? It's um one of the things that I really take away from. By the way, I didn't know any of this until the making of this podcast. So I'm being educated just as much as you guys are. And the main thing that I took away from is that having blind loyalty without assessing the character and um the variables of your conditions is a very dangerous matter. And I'm glad that even though one opportunity when he had the ability to be freed in Ohio, he denied it. I'm glad he was able to come to the awareness that should have been there from the beginning. You know, I like to think, and I'm sure many of other slaves probably that was around him wanted him to think. Was that this, what you're dealing with, or the context of your situation isn't right. And I'm just glad that, uh, and, um, Joe, I'm sorry, say the name again for me. Josanna Henderson. Josanna Henderson, uh, found the, found the awareness needed to make a impactful change in black history. Yeah. One thing I would. One thing I would like to add, excuse me, sorry about that. One thing I want to add to what you're saying is I felt upon researching this and understanding his story is that I think we have to take in consideration that 
when you're subject to a certain point of view or a certain situation, your understanding of better doesn't come right away. Like you don't understand it right away. You've been brainwashed to believe that this is all that is. And unfortunately, that's the importance of being set free from your mentality and the way that you're thinking. When you don't know better, you don't do better sometimes. When you don't realize that there's other opportunities out there, you stay put right in the situation that you're in. And I'm pretty sure a lot of us go through that. I think to some degree, that's why some people are proponents of traveling. Because when you travel and you see other places and you go other you know, go other places, you see how much better certain things are. But more importantly, the exposure opens up your eyes that gives you the ability to dream. And I think, you know, you at a young age, having that exposure or seeing different is what allows you to believe that some of the things that maybe are impossible or not even realistic to some people are very much possible to the person that's been exposed to it. So I think that's what it actually was for him when making that decision to seek freedom versus maybe comfort and being respected based upon his loyalty to the slave owner, you know? So that's what I wanted to say. Well put and well said. Yeah, so we can all, we can unpack that for quite a bit more. But we have much more biblical things to move on to. So thank you so much for those who have been listening and sat back and appreciated the celebration that we had for some black individuals that deserve their flowers and deserve to be heard on this platform. But now we move on to more oppression, more informative things. And that is... You know, the biblical perspective on the truth of the matter is in regards to the the text, the text that we read and we learn from, and that's foundational, and that guides us and directs us. So, with that being said, we're going to jump right into prayer. So, everyone, please listen to my voice, and we'll get started. So, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, as we come to you today, ask that you make known to every individual who's listening the importance of humility. This will be the topic of conversation today, Lord. You told us in the book of James chapter 4, verse 6, that you, God, opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You also said something like it in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. So, Lord, as we move and operate with the premise of learning about humility, I would like you to open all eyes, all ears, all minds, all hearts to the instruction of your word. I pray that most of us, if not all of us, listen to receive with not objection, that we are looking to learn, not opposing, and that we all leave this conversation differently and not the same. So, Holy Spirit, have your way. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, cool. Now, before we go into the scripture, the text for the day is important. And before we can get started, I think it's important that first we need to unpack the word humility, right? We have to unpack that word. So humility is the state of being humble, 
or it can mean the freedom from pride or arrogance. Let me repeat that one more time. Humility, the state of being humble or the freedom from pride or arrogance. Now, there are a few things that came to my mind upon reflecting on this word humility. Having any form of humility goes against what may be appealing to most. Now, why would I say that, right? Why would I say that? It could be a threat to our self-worth and our self-realization. Well, how so? Let's be honest. Self-realization and enhancing our self-worth is something we all strive for. Unfortunately, it's arrogance, greed, and self-centeredness that leaves us lacking humility. This is the reason why experiencing a revival can force us to reflect and reconsider some things. And hopefully that can change the outlook on our future situations. When we think about humanity, it's really about the result of having an experience that has you and many others reflecting upon things. In some cases, it's understanding of a position and then it's an approach on an attitude towards that opportunity. And what it entails and how you should handle that responsibility. So let's look at such things like leadership, learning, right, in any situation. And a big one would be pro-social behavior, which is the benefit of others as a whole, right? So when you're trying to help, you're sharing, you're donating, you're cooperating, you're volunteering, just to name a few things that come to mind at the moment. When you look at those situations, you can learn from the job but also the circumstances that are benefiting others while you're in a position where you might be considered as a person who's doing much better off. Now, being in that position, your self-awareness starts to kick in and you begin to realize that you're covered, you're shielded, and you're doing just fine while someone else isn't. The fact that you thought it through, right? You got to give yourself credit, right? Because you thought it through and you understood. And I believe that's humility at its finest. And I would call that a humbling experience. Now, when I think about humility from a historical perspective, it's a core value in ethics and a theological framework. So I remember sharing this on the first episode of our podcast. And I talked about how I majored in philosophy. So I can speak to how humility has played a huge role from a philosophical point of view. And by doing that, I'll name a Greek philosopher by the name of Socrates, who believed that wisdom is above all, knowing what we don't know. Now, to kind of relate this back to a biblical perspective, it was Paul who acknowledged in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, that Greeks look for what? Wisdom. To be more accurate, the text says this directly. We're going to look at this in the ESV. And that is, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. We're also going to look at this in the Amplified Version, which says, For Jews demand signs, attested miracles, and Greeks pursue worldly wisdom and philosophy. I'm going to repeat that again. And we're looking at the Amplified Version. For Jews demand signs, attesting miracles, and Greeks pursue worldly wisdom and philosophy. So with that being said, Socrates taught what I would classify as an intellectual academic form of humility, admitting We don't know it all, human beings, and that we indeed have intellectual blind spots. 
And in order for us to be better, we must address it in order so that we can flourish in life. When I think about another philosopher, I'm thinking about Aristotle. And I would believe that he would classify humility as a moral virtue. He would say it's all about having an accurate self-knowledge and an acknowledgement of others that can help you, right? Along the way to achieving this flourishing, successful life. Now we're relating this back to a biblical text. Paul tells us something extremely valuable. And this is where we start to really understand how godly wisdom, godly discernment, and godly judgment is much more powerful than the knowledge that those who seek to have from a philosophical perspective when we're looking at knowledge from the world. So we're going to look at the text, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to go through verse 1 through 2. Now, I want us to read it in a few translations, because I think the interpretation of these verses are extremely powerful. So, Daniel, let's look at the NLT first, and it says, Now, regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. Powerful message. Now let's look at it in the NIV. Now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs us up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. Now, my personal favorite is the NIV, because when you picture what puffed up knowledge look like and what build love looks like, something that puffs up is temporary. Something that builds up is methodically something that took quite a bit of time to get there. Just like if you're walking up the stairs, every step that you take, you sort of feel like you achieve something, right? And we know that the foundation, it always starts from the bottom up. But something that puffs up to me comes off more as something that's either temporarily or something that appears or gives the impression or the mystique that it looks great. But upon checking it out or evaluating it or really honing in on it, you kind of find out that it means absolutely nothing. All right. And that's just my way of philosophically breaking that verse down when I'm thinking about something that looks puffed up and something that is built up. Any thoughts in regards to that, Daniel? Yeah, I felt anybody who um is using knowledge to try to tear another human down or using what you gain and your understanding to try to destroy others that's a you need therapy that's scary <laughs> like it's just it's a very scary thought to think that people go around trying to learn things for one-upmanship yeah and you know you being a philosophy student i'm sure you've seen plenty of that absolutely the exercise of trying to exploit somebody else by belittling their decision or their choices or their thinking and how out of whack their decisions and thoughts might be. Let alone a lot of the ideas that are constructed in a philosophy mindset is very 
I would say, opinionated as well. Against, I guess to some degree, they're trying to utilize what's around us to try to draw a conclusion. But it's always flawed. And I think anything that you're doing from a humanistic perspective doesn't always lead down a path of something that's brilliant or unique. I think it's nothing but a smoke screen. Now let's look at the NASB. See what it says here. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. I like that version too, by the way. Finally, let's check out the Amplified version. Now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all have knowledge concerning this. Knowledge alone makes people self-righteously arrogant. But love that unselfishly seeks the best for others builds up and encourages others to grow in wisdom. If anyone imagines that he knows and understands anything of divine matters without love, he has not yet known as he ought to know. So the reason why we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-2 to is because the conversation is about Paul addressing a specific topic about something they are familiar with. And in the midst of that conversation, he's addressing two points. One, who seeks to pursue self-knowledge for obviously self-edification, and one who seeks to... I guess, establish love, which is much more fulfilling and necessary. Now, I don't need to tell you what Paul says, because I think his statements already hold enough weight and have enough power. But what I want to share is that operating and chasing out the love to me brings about much more humility than it is about seeking knowledge to edify yourself and no one else. Yeah, it's cool to have head knowledge, but why not love to provide a little bit more to someone? I think it's not always about the development of oneself. It's also about the impact that you have on others. So if we dig a little deeper, I believe more people are inclined to celebrate someone who impacts others rather than one who is brilliant, but their brilliancy has no effect on the people around them. Right. We can use a football analogy here. There are great coaches. And upon those great coaches, you have students. Those students are mentors or they're being mentored by that great coach. Over time, I would kind of characterize what they do as a tree. Right. And you can track all the coaches who they study under. And that would be the master. We can say as an individual, this coach is amazing. But guess what? His tree doesn't provide fruit. Instead, the head is good. But as you work your way down, there's nothing that is being shown from it. That is how you evaluate and analyze whether the teachers are universally beneficial or is it stopping at the buck with one person, meaning they're teaching. Is it universally accepted based upon how it's impacting the student? 
or does it stay with the master and it only seems like the master is the one that has the knowledge and insight and is doing a phenomenal job whereas his information his insight the way he goes about his business doesn't seem to trickle down to the students and they don't capitalize or they aren't as fruitful as an original master so if i'm thinking about a perfect example it can be someone like bill belichick right so for those who don't know bill belichick is the coach for the new england patriots he's had josh mcdaniels he's had quite a few other coaches that have worked with him unfortunately as great as bill belichick is right one who has six super bowl rings there's not that much positive words of affirmation that people have about his students other than Josh McDaniels and even Josh McDaniels some people view him as one that's failed unfortunately what people like to do is they rehire those who worked under them keep them there and probably a second or third time they're successful right but that's exactly what I'm talking about now from a biblical perspective right Jesus makes something extremely known and we can check this out in the gospel of john but there's no need to go to exact verse i'll try to sum it up in short we there's a image in which jesus is washing his disciples feet and none of that action is an example that he's setting but then he goes on to say people will know who you are and know that you are my disciples based upon how you treat one another therefore the way we love others and the way we place that love provides an implication that we were taught correctly and if we were then taught correctly we know that the love that we have comes from God and that we are an extension of his love now I can go on and on and on but I'll stop there so in short what I'm trying to say is God has disciples he provided example by washing his disciples feet Based upon that example that he's setting, God's expecting that those disciples and the example that he left with them, they then too can teach others. And it's sort of like a domino effect. You do one good thing, they do one good thing, then their friends and their, I would say, students do one good thing. And then when you look at the source, the one who set the example, you can say that the source did a phenomenal job and it's shown through his disciples and through the disciple students and there on and so forth. That's why I would call it a domino effect. So with that being said, let's go to our text for today. We're going to look at the gospel of Luke chapter 14, and we're going to break down verses 1 through 24. So Daniel, take it away, please. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully and behold there was a man before him who had dropsy and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not but they remained silent then he took him and healed him and sent him away and he said to them Which of you, having a son or an ox 
that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the place of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at a table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and who and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, and you will be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have brought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have brought five yoking of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And then the servant said, Sir, what you command has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Yeah, great job, Daniel. Great job. We should give you a round of applause for that. Thank you. Yep. So, verse 1 through 6, to me, is very telling for several reasons. One reason is the Pharisees were watching carefully to obviously nitpick. Alright, I think they were nitpicking. They were looking for a reason to nitpick. You don't just look and listen attentively, attentively unless you really care about what's being said. Or you're preparing to complain about something that to me is really unnecessary. 
In verse number two, we see a man coming into the picture and was identified as one who had dropsy. Now, when I looked into what dropsy was, there are several underlying causes for dropsy. One is congestive heart failure. You have liver failure. You have kidney failure. Now, that's rough, especially during that time. Wouldn't you agree, Daniel? Yeah, especially considering the limited uh, medication that I would imagine would be available at that time. And I think there's a lot of people walking around with these type of illnesses and people are just turning a blind eye, especially if if, if it's the Sabbath. That's actually insane. Mm-hmm. Which is why Jesus was like the ultimate antidote. I mean... He wasn't giving people medicine, telling them that, you know, in a couple of weeks or maybe a month, you'll be better. He was taking that away immediately. <laughs> right. Kind of remind me of this episode where I spoke about, you know, God being able to just address things right in the middle of, of the situation. Right. I think there were a couple of ones were processed when he healed the man that was blind. And I believe it talks about this in the ESV where he said, he kept rinsing until he could see. I think the other issue, too, was when the woman came a long way to speak to Jesus. And he said, by the time you get home, he'll be OK. So maybe I take that back. Maybe it was a little bit of a process, but it was definitely a faster process than what we have now. Which, which makes me think I wonder if medication is just a mirror image of the capabilities that God has and therefore his ability to encourage those who are doctors and scientists to be able to formulate something and create an antidote is a mirror image of what God's been able to do without the scientific necessities. Right. But I digress. Right. I'm digging into some stuff that makes me think how God has his handprint in society in different ways. And we probably don't want to think about that. Right. Because it kind of takes away our ability to do things independently of him. Right. Interesting concept. (laughs) Right. Because that's even when I think about. Let me kind of go on this road a little bit more. Even when I think about Moses and I think about how he's the writer of Exodus and we kind of. Look at the story of how Adam, who was put to sleep. And Eve came based upon what was removed out of Moses so that Eve can exist. I would have to believe that God was the first surgeon because he put Adam to sleep, took something out of Adam and then created Eve. Right. So I'm just saying, you know, you you look into that stuff, you kind of sit back and you're just saying. We don't want to acknowledge God. It can't be that it has to be something else. Right. So we go to verse three. I felt it was a sarcastic statement from Jesus. And yet I figured it was a rhetorical question by Jesus also, because we learned that Jesus asked the Pharisees a question. And that was, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now I laugh because we're in chapter 14 and there's no telling how long ago this situation happened in these texts could have been right away, maybe a few days ago, maybe a few weeks ago not sure what i do know is this is what makes things interesting because when we go back into chapter 13 jesus heard their view already so 
there was this was their view when we go to Luke 13 verses 14 through 17. Dan, remind the people. Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. So stop right there, right? Read it one more time. Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. So just (laughs) think of the arrogance it takes for a person to say something like that. To just say, we've strategically created a structure in which if you're dealing with something like an illness, that we only want you to come on this day. And if it's really bothering you, by the way, we need you to 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 kind of manage that pain until it's the appropriate time for you to come get healed. Right? That sounds nice from a structured standpoint. But listen, if my mouth is hurting, I'm going to the dentist. <laughs> right? I got to go find out what's wrong with me. I understand I'm making an appointment, but whoever sees me right away, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to sit there and suffer it through, right, in the name of patience from the standpoint of they have the specific structure and I'm not going to abide by the structure for my betterment, for my betterment and my discomfort. And I just can imagine someone telling me, that because I'm suffering, I need to maintain the suffering for the sake of the structure they think is better fit. Which is crazy, right? So continue, Dan. I just, just had a thought about that. I, 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 I don't agree with that. I mean, what do you think? What do you think based upon what he's saying? Imagine you, something's bothering you and they tell you, well, if it's bothering you, you're going to have to wait a few weeks before you can be seen by somebody. Reminds me of this time um, when I was working, customer service. We had a customer come in for a package that needs to be picked up. And the package was right in the back in the receiving area. But it hasn't been processed yet. But the customer came all this way because the app told him that, you know, it's ready for in-store pickup. And even though we know the package is exactly where it's at and where it needs, you know, where to go to get it for the customer. The front end desk lady tells the customer, well, you have to come back tomorrow. (laughs) And sends him on his way. So you're going to make somebody do double the work and make two trips over here. And leave unsatisfied. Because we don't want to take two to three minutes to do what is in our power. That's that's ludicrous. <laughs> so of course I stepped in, and after she turned him away, and the customer was you know speaking to his wife about the situation, I said, "Could you give me two or three minutes? I'll see if I can get the package for you. Just wait here for two or three minutes. Call the manager up, let her know what the situation was, and of course the first thing she says is, "Yeah, you know, go ahead and handle it, take care of it." And I feel like if everybody just puts in the effort to do what is needed to be done what is within our power to step boldly into the fray to solve issues, then we don't have 
you know, modern day Pharisees. <laughs> yeah, I, I, there's no reason I, yeah. to to let somebody suffer when you can do something about it. Yeah, I like that example. That's that's a really powerful real life example right there. Thank you for that example. That's great. I, I actually like that example a lot because it it shows the humility that if it was you, you would want someone to do the same thing for you, right? Do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. The fact yeah. that kind of to me, to some degree, and I don't want to judge the young lady at the desk. That's kind of lazy working. Like you, well, could. that's exactly what it is. <laughs> it's like you could help. I feel like sometimes we like to sugarcoat it, mm-hmm. but you're just worried about the next person in line or just trying to. A heed to the rules so much that you don't see what you can do to help somebody else to the fullest extent. Mm-hmm. You'd rather give them the rundown or the run around the mill instead of, you know, doing something to solve the problem. See, the problem is solvable first before you just give somebody the, you know, the runaround. Yeah, and I would believe that the customers first in a lot of situations. That's what they always tell us, but. Some of them, well, yeah. doing the right thing is always first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why I believe, you know, the the main kind of takeaway I'm getting away from the way Jesus um, deals with not only the Pharisees but the way he just operated in general was to be bold, but yet humble. Like you get that boldness when you know you're doing the right thing, mm. but you can be humble about it. He. Why you mentioned earlier, he may have had like a sarcastic tone or it could have been a rhetorical question. What I think Jesus was attempting to do was to get people to think critically about what is within their power to do, what is within their power to execute upon. Don't just sit back and accept the status quo for what it is, but yet challenge it. If something mm -hmm. is not right or you feel something is within your power to do something, act upon that. Yeah, you're speaking of verse 5 and 6, and we get to that real quick. So, for the people, uh, you just finish this off real quick. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath, they would not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's pretty straight. <laughs> <laughs> it just answers itself right there. Like, yeah, think critically about it. When we, when we look at the whole the whole scenario, you're just gonna leave the ox down there. You're gonna leave your son down in a well, mm-hmm. or you're gonna do something about it. So now you see somebody with an illness before you, a something heart congestion, liver failure. What what was the other symptoms like? For God's sakes, help the man do something yeah. about it. Not uh, it's the Sabbath. Uh, come back tomorrow, like that. Can you imagine <laughs> telling somebody that? Yeah. So, so look at to continue. Look at what the Lord says to him. Right. He says, "You hypocrites, right? Doesn't each of you on the <laughs> Sabbath unite your own ox or your donkey from the store and lead it out to give it water? Then." Should not this woman, the daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, 18 long years, be set free from the Sabbath day? From what bound her? So the question is, you know, why would Jesus say in Luke 14.3, in response to the lawyers and Pharisees, is the law to be healed unlawful on the Sabbath? Or not? 
right? Is it lawful to be healed on the Sabbath or not? When he knew their answer, right? Hence the reason why I said it was rhetorical, but sarcastic, right? Because it's like he knew about this, right? In verse 4, the alarming reaction to me is, you know, why were the Pharisees so silent then, right? Was it because they were fascinated with a demonstration of Jesus' power? Did they? Did he do it nonchalantly? Was it because also he healed the man and he went on his way and he sipped his beverage and smiled at him, right? The text doesn't indicate anything, but I'm amused and I think it's funny to imagine in real time what actually happened because we just hear that there was silence, right? So my thoughts before we move on is where's the compassion, the understanding, the humility, the desire to show love to someone who was delivered from dropsy? No type of joy for the man. I find that to be unbelievable and extremely disgusting from a humanistic perspective. Just wanted someone better. What happened to being humble? Right? Enough to acknowledge the discomfort the man might have been going through. Why no humility for the man? Right? What he did to you guys. Right? He was struggling. Same thing with the woman who had the illness for 18 years. Rather than rejoice, we see nothing but bitterness and traditional principle to be held and much more esteem and regard than the freedom that from an illness in which someone was going through. <sighs> okay, let's check out verse 7 through 11. About the parable of a wedding feast. Jesus told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes and he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Yeah, exactly what you're saying, Dan. You said a lot of great things in the previous Statements that lend a lot of wisdom and knowledge to this text, right? I see Jesus provided some wisdom, right? That requires some humility to be clear. So here are always a, I, I personally think, right? There's always going to be a battle between humility and pride all the time, man. So here are some examples that come to mind when I think about it. So I think humility exalts God and others at the expense of self, which is exactly what Jesus is informing the men at this dinner. Right. It's in the book of Philippians, chapter two, verse three. And it says. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, pride exalts self at the expense of God and others. Let's look at third John. Chapter one, verse nine. And it says. 
Theotrephes, who loved to be the leader, refuses to have anything to do with us. Right, so humility gains what it does not seek. Hence is what we see at the end of verse 11, which says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who exalts himself will be exalted. As for pride, it always loses what it seeks. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2, and it says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. <laughs> Finally, y'all say this. Humility draws God's favor. Right, and we can go to Proverbs chapter three, verse thirty-four, and it says, "To the humble, he gives favor." Then, when it comes to pride that draws God's opposition, we can find in in this verse, and I think I mentioned it as well in the earlier prayer, the book of James, chapter four, verse six, and it says, "God opposes the proud." Yep, so very straightforward stuff here. So, let's tackle last 12 verses here. Let's look at Luke 14. We're going to look at verse 12 through 24. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you will be repaid. But when you give a feast... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet, and invited men. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have brought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have brought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please, have me excused. And another said, uh, uh, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor, and crippled, and blind, and lame. And the servant said, Sir, would you... Commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Yeah, so in short, I think the wedding feast is really a parable about universalism, right? We know that Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God and that it's just not open to the Jews, but it's open to everyone, not only the Jews, right? I think most importantly, what makes this parable so powerful and prophetic is that 
we need to understand that God's invitation, right, calls on all different types of people, right? God offers universal salvation. And when we think about this story in context, he's letting them know that based upon the king here, he basically invited the people that he knew, which is the Jews. They rejected him. They claimed that they had other places to go. So what does he do? He goes out into the streets, into the highways. The people who probably are not of high esteem in terms of status. And they also invited in. And what's amazing about it is they said there's still more room. <laughs> so he continues to search. He continues to look, right? And I think an, under, an underlying message here in regards to what's being stated is don't just invite people that you're familiar with because all that you're going to know is that you're going to get exactly something back from them. Invite people who don't have the capabilities of giving it back. That's a phenomenal thing, something that Jesus says in the Gospels, that give with the intent, not with the hope to get it back. Because if you're truly giving something out of the goodness of your heart, it, you shouldn't be hoping that you get it back. Now, if you get it back, that's a great thing. But if you give, give with the intent not to expect it back, right? So we can really unpack this, and I think we will when we get into the Gospel of Matthew. But that's just something I kind of wanted to pinpoint. Now, there's one more thing that I wanted to share. Funny story, right? I sort of wanted to mention something that made me laugh, giggle, and I think it might do the same for you as well. because. What came to mind is, again, this topic is about humility, right? And I remember a long time ago, I downloaded this app called OkCupid. And one of the questions it asked me was, would you prefer to kiss in a tent or in Paris? Now, the indication of the question is based on what you prefer. But when you think about you know where you're kissing if you're kissing in the tent or you're kissing in Paris you're really evaluating what seems to be more appeasing or what seems to be what drives you to have the experience right kissing in Paris obviously is an experience kissing in the tent is also an experience but it really sheds light on the love that you have for the person now I would ask the question is kissing in the tent in the woods, does changing the setting make you have more feelings for a person or less feelings for the person based upon what they can afford, maybe, or based upon the fact that you have the opportunity to be in the presence of the person that you care about? Does the surroundings make a difference? Does it play a role? Does the superficialness, the mystique, allow you to have deeper feelings for the person? Or does the love that I have for the person remain regardless of the circumstances and situation? I think that all has to do with the humility, right? Which is why I can applaud some people that have relationships that span 20, 30, 40 years. And you have some people that struggle all the way to the top. And in the midst of that struggle, you know, they earn stripes. Some stripes that 
you know, made them feel like they were less fortunate than everybody else. But you really saw that you can really see the uniqueness of the person that remains in the relationship, regardless of the person that's struggling. It's almost like an acknowledgement of the vows, like through sickness, through poor, you know, death do us part. Through all those issues, the person that's elected to be in your life, in spite of what your status is, really is someone that you, that is your, you know, your ride or your die, the person that matters to you the most. So <laughs> we can look at humility from the standpoint of relationships, or like we've done for the last 30 minutes, we can view it from a biblical context and what it does. And I believe humility will show you the mentality of the person. And if they're in it because they care about you or they're in it for other means. So this is what I want to say. Finishing up. As believers and followers of Christ, we have to understand that we're set apart and we're different from the rest of the world. And the way that we have arrived is we actually have acknowledged and we have humility in recognizing that God is our higher power, that Jesus lived the perfect life, that Jesus died and the Father raised him from the dead. Therefore, what is obvious to us and yet is a mystery and somewhat laughable to others is Jesus in all his glory, honor, power, authority, goodness, justice, love, and his blessing for us. So much so that in his very essence, he came down here to save us, cared for us, and paved the way so that we can be entitled to everlasting life. And because of that, he deserves acknowledgement. And as one saying this, I, Jonathan, believe that there has to be a sense of humility and reverence to God. And with that said, I hope that moving forward, we can all express and exercise humility because God knows that we all need it in some aspect of our lives. So before I go into prayer, is there anything you would like to add, Daniel? No. No. Okay. So now the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, we're, Obviously, looking over the landscape, looking over the world, there's war going on. And with that being said, we felt it was necessary not to have a devotion today, but to actually pray for those who need our voice. Because we know most definitely they need our voice. There are believers over there. Therefore, Lord, you know, we're going to ask everybody to bow our heads as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, as years increase and the days get long, we long for your return. Not knowing the day, nor the hour, or the time, we can hope that upon your return, we are found doing what is right and honor of you while holding on to the truth you provided us. Father, your testimony is that we have faith in your son, Jesus Christ, who will, whoever believes in him will not perish, nor will they be put to shame, but receive a reward of everlasting life. 
Lord, as followers of you, we have no doubts that you are capable of doing the impossible. Whatever appears to be insanely unreasonable or probable, we know that when you are here, victory occurs once you have a hand in it. As we look at your handiwork in scripture, whether it was in the book of Judges giving Gideon victory of half of an army while the rest was sent home, we see victory coming to the rights of Moses, Joshua, David, just to name a few. And time and time again, whether the people were few in number or lacked manpower and experience, Lord, you have shown up and provided the doubters wrong. You proved them wrong time and time again. Lord, you have always provided us reasons to shout your name and acknowledge you as Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, the first and the last. And because of that, we know that you are God who is present in the human experience, present in history, present when we call in your name. You Lord, you said any time two or three are gathered, there you are in the midst. So, Lord, we ask that you empower Ukraine against Russia in their war. Give them the strength to stand up against the opposition. Give them favor to stand up for themselves in the name of justice, your justice. As Americans who have accepted you as Savior, I believe I can speak for all believers and even non-believers that, you know, we all believe that they are worshipers, followers, brothers, sisters who are soon to acknowledge you or even those who won't. They're over there in that war zone. They need our prayers. In the book of James, you said that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So all who are listening to the truth of the matter is separate. We ask that you join us in prayer for Ukraine. And we ask you, God, to show your power and your influence over the situation and how much of a difference it is to have you leading. Because if you are in it, who could be against them? If you are in it, where is their failure? If you are in it, we can already announce that the victory is upon them. So therefore, Lord, we ask you these things with surety and complete understanding that anything that happens and is according to your will, you will do it. We can close our eyes tomorrow or the next day. Or however long this takes, knowing that the whole world's in your hands. And the enemy will get their due justice. So we say this in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen.